Hi, I'm Mark Roderman, and this is Front Row. A North Carolina court grants voting rights for thousands of convicted felons. The General Assembly passes bipartisan criminal justice reform and the debate over giving children under 12 the COVID-19 vaccine. Next. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Donna King, Editor-in-Chief of Carolina Journal, Robert Reeves, the Democratic leader in the House, Morgan Jackson, Chief Political Strategist for Governor Roy Cooper, and Democratic State Senator Cindy Batch. Donna, why don't we begin with the court ruling on voting rights for felons? Yes, a three-judge panel ruled two to one uh, to create voting rights for convicted felons before they've completely served their sentence. Now, in North Carolina's Constitution, it says that uh, convicted felons cannot vote at all. And then in the 1970s, a Democrat-led General Assembly rolled that back a bit and said once they had served their sentence to include probation, parole, restitution, then their voting rights could be reinstalled. Well, this, this, these two judges have now rolled that back based on a lawsuit that was filed uh, about a year ago by some civil rights groups and for and uh, convicted felons. And what that means is that once they're not incarcerated any longer, once uh, while they are still uh, serving parole or probation, those voting rights can be reinstated. Now, this affects about more than 50,000 convicted felons. The North Carolina General Assembly uh, wants the, the Attorney General, Josh Stein, to appeal the ruling. He has so far refused, so now they're hiring some outside counsel to take it back to court. Okay, Robert, should this have been handled by the General Assembly? Would it better, is that your purview? Well, in my opinion, this isn't something for the General Assembly because this is an interpretation of the law as it stands right now. And I think that is what we have the courts for. We pass the laws, then they interpret what the purpose of the laws were. And so, therefore, I understand where their interpretation seems to be coming from. But I think even if, as it goes to A.G. Stein, at this point, not entering an appeal, we've kind of got to wait until the written order is sent so that we know what was the basis for the decision. Morgan, where is this headed? You know, it's certainly headed to the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court, and ultimately the, they'll have the final say. You know, it, there's a really big discussion, Martin, that's taking place all across the country about restoration of voting rights. Um, many states have it. Many, I was going to say, the large majority of states actually are in line with what the judges said. And, you know, the, the judges obviously got a lot of criticism from the General Assembly about legislating from the bench. Uh, and sort of call them activist judges. But it's important to know that out of this three-judge panel that made a decision, it was two Republicans and one Democrat. Uh, but again, I think that the key thing to understand here is this brings us in line with, I think, 37 other states uh, that have the same, the, the same uh, law that allows, once you've completed your incarceration, your rights can be restored. Way in here, Sydney. I think it's really interesting that at a time in which for the past four or five years we've talked about criminal justice reform and we have the Second Chance Act and that's been bipartisan legislation. So now Republican leadership is saying in one hand, yes, we want to oh, go ahead and give you a second chance. We want to go ahead and allow for you to... You're talking about Speaker Tim Moore? 
Uh, yes, he is one of the, he he actually was the named defendant in the in the right. case. And one of the things they said is, yes, we believe people should have a second chance, but you don't want them to vote. And so I think that they're from one hand they say, oh yeah, we'll go ahead and expunge some of your records, but we don't want you to have the ability to vote after you've served your time. And we should be in line with the rest of the country in that manner. Morgan, could these fifty-five thousand voters make a difference in an election? You know, listen, North Carolina is a 50-50 state. You win these elections on the margins. And so I think everything has a, a great impact on the election. But you got to also remember, just because you restore 55,000 votes, doesn't, uh, rights doesn't to voters, doesn't mean they're, they're going to turn out either. Right. Uh, and that's, that's, so you wouldn't target them, right? Uh, <laughs> I, we target every registered voter that's likely to turn out. Donna. Well, I think it's important, important to remember that one voter can make a huge difference, particularly when we have municipal elections coming up very, very soon. Uh, our courts are designed to rule on the constitutionality of laws, and, and felons not being allowed to vote is in North Carolina's constitution. Close this out in about 30 seconds, my friend. And again, I think the important point is everybody agrees on these points. One, that felons should be able to vote. Two, the question is, just as Sydney was talking about, should it be after they've paid a certain amount of money or should it be after they've served their sentence? And that's really what the courts seem to be concentrating on. So if everybody agrees on that, and three, what I thought was really interesting is that you actually had agreement from the defendants that the original basis of some of these laws was based in bad faith. And so therefore there had to be some type of reconciliation here. And to me, the courts have been trying to give a reconciliation. Great rap. I want to talk to you, Sidney, about the General Assembly's week. Yeah, so everyone would think that we wouldn't have a lot to talk about, but alas, we are still here in September and we are going full steam uh, right now at the General Assembly. Really important legislation moved through and is heading to the governor's desk. Hopefully he is going to sign it. Uh, SB 300, which is a criminal justice reform bill, it actually incorporated a lot of the recommendations from his task force and it, one of the major parts of it is that North Carolina is one of the only states that allows six-year-olds to be charged criminally and entered into the um, criminal justice system. We've now raised the age to 10 with the exception of eight to nine-year-olds who actually, for serious offenses, can actually still enter the criminal justice system. The other aspect of that law is that they incorporated a lot of the tracking. So for um, bad acting officers, they will be tracking that. Um, for officer-involved shootings, that will also be tracked. It also has an increase in the amount of law enforcement training for certain officers. And the most important that people were really um, happy about is that there's a duty to act now. A law enforcement officer sees an excessive use, they actually have to intervene. So that was extremely important. Donna, what have you been following? Well, I was really following closely. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson came to the General Assembly this week to, to reveal his report on the FACTS Task Force, uh, which started about a year ago, uh, talking about what he called an anti-indoctrination uh, process in North Carolina's public schools. He opened up a line to have uh, teachers, parents uh, submit instances that they that have bothered them about what's going on in their children's classroom or in their own classroom and training. Uh, this bill was then passed by the Senate. It would prohibit public schools from promoting uh, controversial headed viewpoints. Headed to the House. It is headed to the House because it changed when it came over. Um, but basically, it doesn't mention critical race theory, but a lot of the issues, a lot of the things that it would uh, ban are do stem from critical race theory, among them that one race or sex is inherently superior to another. There are a lot of parts of these 13 points of what he said were discriminatory viewpoints. There's a lot of, uh, lot of 
you know, fire, a lot of uh, a lot of heated debate on the floor of the Senate over this. There was some criticism of homeschool parents saying uh, that, you know, that this doesn't really apply to them. But really what we're seeing is that this is stemming from a lot of parent and teacher complaints from across the state. But it passed purely on party lines, Republicans voting in favor, Democrats voting against. Hospital reform came up, too, as well, correct? Yes, hospital reform is something that's been out there for a long time, and we've still got to figure this out because the bottom line with hospital reform is we are getting into a health care crisis, and we've got to figure out how we can approach some of these areas, how best to serve some of these rules. Certificate of need has been adjusted, and and it's going to continue to get looked at because we've got to figure out how best to serve rural areas and urban areas in a fair and equitable way. There was an anti-rioting bill, I think, passed the Senate late this week, Morgan. Yes, it did, and I I think it, 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 it basically passed along party lines, and it's something that stems from a lot of the protests that took place after the death of George Floyd. And, you know, Republicans make the argument that it protects businesses. I think at the same time, Democrats made the argument and a lot of other opponents made the argument that it, it quells it, it, it uh, quells free speech. And, and it is really aimed at certain folks. Um, the, some of the bad things in here are like, just because you're participating in, in a march, you could get held for 48 hours uh, and not even charged. And I think those are really uh, questionable type uh, pieces of legisla- legislation, and I don't see this gaining support and becoming law. Well, it head to the House, mean, in other words, the governor will veto it. I think right now it's a bad bill. What's going to happen to the House with that bill? Well, it's got to come back to the House for concurrence because right. we had already voted the bill right. out. And I think that you're going to see a similar vote in the House and then about concurrence, and then it's got to go to the governor's desk. Is there a veto-proof majority, you think? I would expect so. Okay. I want to talk to you, come right back to you, talk about COVID-19 and debate over giving children under 12 the vaccine. Well, it's been a really interesting debate because what's happened this week is that Pfizer has been given full approval by the FDA, which allows for what they call off-label um, usage. And what and that's something that a lot of us weren't familiar with until we heard about this. So with off-label usage, that means that even though it's been approved for 12 and up, this would allow legally for doctors to be able to give the vaccine to people 12 and under. But groups of doctors have said, please don't do this yet. You've also had, uh, you know, groups of, not groups, but the FDA saying the same thing. It's like, let's finish up these trials before we make that decision. And it really becomes a balance between safety uh, as opposed to parents' concerns about COVID. And the parental concerns about COVID are real. I mean, those of us that have small children, especially small children with any kind of illness, it's a scary thing. And really, you don't want to think that, man, if I'd done this now, then, you know, maybe he would have been safe three months from now. But on the flip side, you don't want to expose your children to something that could be not ready for. That's a great point. Is there enough data out there, you think, Morgan? Listen, I I think like everything, uh, this is a conversation that needs to be had between doctors, pediatricians uh, and parents about their kids. There is a tremendous amount of anxiety with parents right now. Uh, I'm very fortunate our kids are 12 and over and they've been double vaccinated. But for folks that are, on, are not 12 and are not going to be 12 anytime soon, uh, you've got the tremendous rise in the Delta variant. You've got ICUs in North Carolina. Most hospitals are 90, 95 percent full. Their ICUs are. And I think, Mark, the salient point really here is this is all preventable. We've got, when you look at the folks that are in ICU right now, 90 to 95% of them are all unvaccinated. And so my real point is to adults out there and people over 12, like you can prevent the spread of this by getting the vaccine. And if you won't do it for yourself, do it for your kids or do it for your neighbor's kids or who they go to school with. Is the governor uh, pleased with the progress so far? 
you know, I, I think we have made good progress on vaccinations and I, we've had, seen a real spike in vaccinations since the Delta variant has come up. But with schools going back, colleges going back in session and all the congregate living scenarios, you already see breakouts at a, or outbreaks at a lot of these colleges. But with, with schools going back in session, that's what's got parents' anxiety at an all-time high. And I understand it. Donna, you have children around that age. I do, and I think it is important to note that they are not little adults. Their immune system develops very differently than, than adults do, and it usually doesn't completely kick in. Their response to vaccines is different. It doesn't kick in until after puberty or so, but I, I agree with what Morgan said. This is really a conversation for parents to have with their doctors, not with schools, not with employers, not certainly not with the government. This is something that parents need to consider, and, and of course, the advice of their doctor is, is critical to that. We are seeing a lot of folks going back. Uh, fortunately, in, the, in some of these congregations, get living situations on college campuses. Vast majority are asymptomatic and uh, the hospitals, while they are, there are more people in the hospitals, they're not necessarily children and even youth um, that are in uh, in the hospital with COVID. So I think it's something that we have to step back. We have to look at the opportunities available with, that our scientific community has, has provided for us and parents really need to talk to their doctors about this. Cindy, put this in context, please. Now, I'm a parent of two kids who are too young to get vaccinated, just like Robert. And I have anxiety about sending back to school, but we do know that kids need to be back in school. They need that socialization. And so I think one of the most important parts, as it's already been um, pointed out, is that you do have these conversations with your doctors and your pediatricians, but we just need to hold, stay the course and wait until the information comes out. We believe that the information for the COVID and all of the data that the FDA is requiring to actually authorize it will be out in September, October. So they will have that information. They'll be able to review all the data and hopefully be in a position in which by this fall, kids under the age of 12 can finally get back. Robert, wrap this up in about 40 seconds, my friend. I think what everybody said is what it is. We've got to figure out a way for parents to be able to alleviate their concerns. And one of the biggest ways to be able to do that is for all the rest of us that can get vaccinated to get vaccinated, stop this spread. Because again, the hospital problem is a real problem. You've got people who have real issues that can't get seen because of what we've got going on with COVID. And if we could stop that spread among children, I think that would be a big win for everybody. Okay, Morgan, I want to talk to you about the devastation and the flooding in Western North Carolina, parts of Western North Carolina. It, it's, it's tragic, and I, I think our, our hearts go out to families in Western North Carolina, the communities that have been so uh, devastated. Hurricane, or, or excuse me, tropical, the remnants of tropical, tropical storm Fred came through, dropped 10 inches of rain, uh, which is a ton of rain, but you also got to look at the the uh, topography up there and the fact that there's nowhere for it to pool. And so it runs down the mountain and it takes, you know, these rivers were swelling. You've got debris and roads blocking roads, hundreds of millions of dollars in damage, especially in places like Haywood in Transylvania County. The governor declared a state of emergency. The governor declared a state of emergency. He's been out there a couple of times touring damage and it is devastating. He is asking, he's going to be asking the Biden administration to declare a federal disaster. Uh, which you've seen Tennessee ha has just got theirs a couple of days ago. And what the importance of that is it unlocks FEMA funds for individual assistance for families, for businesses, for uh, local governments to help clear debris, to help individual assistance to repair homes or, or rebuild homes or, or temporary housing. And it's really, really important. Uh, and that'll be that that is going into the federal government as we speak. Robert, is the General Assembly going to weigh in on this with funding? I would expect so at some point in time. I think, it again, it depends.
depends on what happens with FEMA. It depends on what's going on with the devastation itself. But I think the General Assembly is definitely ready to step in if need be. Donna, has this been an underreported story, largely ignored by the mainstream media, you think? I, mean, I haven't seen a lot on it. I haven't seen a lot either, although what I have seen is really dramatic and, and it's alarming. Has it been and, isolated to Western North um, Carolina? I, I think that the flooding was certainly isolated, and I think the coverage probably was to some degree. I think uh, that it's important that they do get you know some assistance, particularly these businesses that really spent a lifetime building them, and now they're more or less gone. My biggest concern is when will they get it? You know, we still have businesses talk to Eastern North Carolina. They're still folks that are trying to recover from Florence. So the bureaucratic process of getting them the assistance is the big, big concern. Is the delivery system, Sydney, a real problem, do you think? I mean, at this point, especially given the fact that there are hurricanes after hurricanes after hurricane, and that this isn't just being seen in North Carolina, this is across the country, whether it be droughts, whether it's fires out west, the federal government is dealing with unprecedented amounts of asks, frankly, in states of emergency from every single place in the country, simply because climate change is a thing, regardless of whether or not you, you want to buy into it, that there are, that we are now in a position where we have to make smart decisions about how we're actually going to try and stave off all of the other natural disasters. That what is the extent, are they estimating, of the damage? They're still, the numbers are still coming in. <clears throat> in Haywood County alone, they were looking at a couple of days ago, $350 million. And that grows, Mark, as you know, that every day that grows as, as you as you get deeper out into the community, find more businesses, more homes, uh, more infrastructure damage. Uh, the debris removal by itself is extremely expensive. Again, some of that's the landscape of the mountains too. Uh, but you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage. Like I said, largely in Haywood in Transylvania. So the governor's going to ask the president, for, for money. How long do you think that process will take? So the problem is everybody, it's the beginning of a process, as Sydney talked about, and it goes, you have to ask for the money from the feds. Then once the feds grant it, it goes into the federal register. And then there's an entire process of grant process. The individual assistance can come a little bit faster sometimes for home repairs, for um, uh, sort of temporary living situation for people who get kicked out. But unfortunately, it, the wheels of government in Washington move slow. And, and part of it is that you've got to make certain that the folks that are getting the money uh, qualify for the money. And there's so much red tape in D.C. to make sure that works. Robert, can it be fast-tracked in the general assembly, you think? Uh, we've shown the ability to fast-track a lot of things, so I think <laughs> we can. <laughs> That'll wrap this up in about 20 seconds. Well, I think it's important to note exactly like everyone said that we are getting hit, particularly North Carolina, with storm after storm, it feels like. Um, but the, at the end of the day, those folks are without a business, uh, without a roof in many cases. And while we sit here and say, OK, let's go get money and we'll bring in FEMA and all that, they're still living day to day that way. So getting that money, getting that assistance to them is critical. There are a lot of volunteers and like Samaritan's Purse or other groups that come in there. It's relied, actually, private groups provide services uh, in very quickly, you know, uh, Baptist men, a lot of these groups get right. in there quickly and, and help. And I think that says a lot about who we are. Okay, I want to go to the most underreported story of the week, Donna. So my most underreported is buried deep within the White House. Biden's proposal is reinstatement or at least expansion of the death tax, that, that money that you have been taxed and earned throughout your life. Uh, that proposal would shift it right now. 3.5 trillion? It, it's a big chunk. So what, what would happen under this case is your children would no longer be charged capital gains when they sell their, their inherited property. Now they, would, they, tr they view inheritance as a transaction and they would be charged capital gains at the point where they inherit it. And that is a huge, it could be devastating for uh, family, family farms, farms, family businesses. Okay, Robert. 
Another report is that Shanghai Ranking Consultancy has ranked UNC number 30 in world universities. That's a pretty big honor. It's got us even ahead of Duke and several of the other Triangle schools, and so we're pretty happy about that. All emails about Duke go to Robert Reed. Okay. Had a reported, please. I love it. You love that one. <laughs> so there's been a big discussion in this country about whether or not states should opt out of federal unemployment assistance right. prior to when it expires in, se in September. A couple of different studies came out from economic analysts this week showing that states had opted out in June. Uh, not only did folks not go back onto the employment roll, seven of eight actually stayed unemployed, but it took a $2 billion hit to their uh, local economies because that money was not being spent at retail establishments, not being spent at grocery stores, at pharmacies, at local businesses. And I, I, I think you know, what this has shown is ultimately that this federal assistance has been propping up the economy in a lot of areas. And those states took a big hit. Two billion dollars out of their economy is to not get more people employed was a big misstep. Well, would you support extending the uh, three hundred dollars a week? You know, I think it's a real I don't think it's going to be extended. I think Biden has said it's not. So uh, I think at the end of the day, I don't think it's real. It's, a, it's up for discussion anymore. I think it's ending it in September. Is Biden losing some of his mojo, you think, because of Afghanistan and other things? I mean, do you look at that three point five trillion dollars as realistic and reconciliation? I do. I think it's going to happen. And that's why I'll talk about it in a minute on my up. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Sydney. Uh, so my underreported is that the CEO of Pfizer came out this week and stated that at some point they believe that the that another variant of COVID will actually be vaccine resistant. And so they are spending all of their time and energy now shifting to make sure that they can make tailored uh, designed vaccines within a 90 on the 95th day of the time in which they actually identify it. 95 days later, they'll actually have a vaccine that will be able to be tailor-made for Lambda or whatever um, variant that will actually have. Well, will people be getting boosters, you think? Yeah, I think that we're going to see boosters. I think that what we're probably going to see is it very similar to the flu vaccine. It has already... So it'll be every year, you think? Well, I mean, the, at the rate that which we're going right now, where they say that herd immunity, we have to have 90% of Americans vaccinated. Yes, we will be doing this yearly, unless we have a lot of people who finally get to a point we have herd immunity, but we don't even have that in this state or anywhere to the high degree of 90%. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Donna? Uh, so up, I'm going to say students, public school, uh, universities, they're finally back on campus. Uh, hopefully uh, they'll stay there. I think that I'm hearing that uh, North Carolina State University has reported that more than 60% of their student body is vaccinated. Uh, UNC is saying about 80%. Uh, I think that's encouraging. They are seeing, of course, because people are back on campus, we're seeing an increase in, in diagnoses because there are more people on campus, but the vast majority are asymptomatic. I think the system is down. Uh, I am hearing anecdotally that there is still a lot of anxiety on campus, particularly among faculty, and that a lot of the kids are reporting uh, that there is some concern. They're hearing it from teachers, and I think that that's alarming, that if, if teachers are talking about, you know, anger and fear in the classroom, it's just going to make it worse. Up and down, my friend. Up, oh, Katie Hochul is the new governor for New York, and she is the very first female governor, and I think that's good for everybody in that sense, and I would say that down is North Carolina unemployment is continuing its downward trend, and we're glad to see that for the economy. Down is Andrew Cuomo. Okay. Good riddance, Andrew Cuomo. I, I thought First you were supporting him for president. I got to tell you, I, Andrew, the, the big secret about Andrew Cuomo is his friends don't like him. And that, uh, that's why nobody supports the guy. Uh, so up, I would say Biden infrastructure plan. It passed a major hurdle in the House this week. I think it, it is fast track for approval in September. Down, I want to get out of politics and talk about Charlie Watts, uh, Rolling Stones drummer, uh, the Rolling Stones have defied gravity 
and, and clean living for uh, over 80 years, and these guys are still rocking. And I tell you, Charlie Watts dying at 80 is he a was a driving force that is. He was a driving Saw him force. Twice. But but, but I got to tell you, man, it, it, they defy the, the the old adage that only the good die young. Those guys are still getting it. Well, uh, you know, on reconciliation, cinema centers, cinema from Arizona and Mansion are the keys, right? You think they're going to go along with this program? I think there's going to be a bill passed in September. We I need a side confident. bet. Up and down this week, Sydney. Uh, hospitalizations across the state due to COVID admissions and down is hunger in America because of the expansion of the federal SNAP benefits of up to 25%, which is the largest expansion since its creation. And then also the combination of those early childhood tax credits. We see that there are significantly less requests for addition uh, or for additional help with regards to food and hunger issues. Okay, what's the headline next week, Don? I'm going to mix it with my down, actually, because uh, I think yeah. approval ratings are down for President Biden about 45% approval rating or less, particularly in light of what's going on in Afghanistan right now. My headline for next week, I think more of the same. I think we're seeing uh, just the beginning of crisis uh, hostage situations, and I think it's really going to land squarely on Biden's shoulders. Do you think there's a crisis confidence in President Biden? I do. I do. I think so for sure, because uh, I think that his statements this week have shown that he seems uh, out, of, out of control of what's happening and out of touch with what's happening. Robert? Budget negotiations finally start to ramp up in the General Assembly. Hopefully, we're going to be looking towards getting a budget signed. How involved is the governor in that, Morgan? Very involved. Uh, he, 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 the, the good news about the governor Are we going to get a budget he, this time? I think we are more optimistic that we're going to get a budget this time than we have been in the last four years. I will tell you, and that's part of my headline next week, I think you're going to see progress on the budget, and you may see progress on an energy bill. So what, what is the governor, what is his feeling on the energy bill? What does he want to see changed? The governor laid out very strongly Executive Order 80 that gets us to 70% carbon reduction by 2030. He also feels very strongly that the Utilities Commission should be making those decisions about the procurement and all-source procurement, and we should not be mandating uh, different entities like natural gas for the future when we don't have the ability. There, there's no, there hasn't been a pipeline coming. Duke canceled ACP. It's not like there's a, a new way to have natural gas. Natural gas is part of the solution, but it can't be mandated as the solution. Headline next week, quickly. Uh, low census population counts prompt North Carolina, uh, rural North Carolina counties to reconsider and challenge the census results. Realistic, what will happen there? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's it for us. See you next week on Front Row, and please keep your, our soldiers in your prayers. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities and by Funding for the Lightning Round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hill. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.